Hello and welcome to Made to Measure, the podcast of the Journal of Trading Standards. I'm Paul Evans. In this episode, we continue to look at the work of the CTSI Business Members Group. In the last episode, we spoke with Wendy Potts about why the BMG was set up, how the membership is comprised, and discussed the advice offered to businesses around compliance on pricing and fair trading. This week, we hear more from Wendy and also speak with Steve Emmett, a self-employed Chartered Trading Standards practitioner who serves as a section representative on the BMG. Steve's area of expertise is food law, and he tells us about the challenges of keeping up with legislation and passing knowledge on to the businesses that require his services. In addition to allergens and food labelling, Steve discusses the food law implications of Brexit and talks about how the increased scrutiny of supply chains has served to offer greater protection to consumers. This episode was recorded before the COVID-19 pandemic led to the massive changes we're all experiencing at the moment. In the next podcast, we'll be discussing how the crisis is affecting consumer protection issues. But for now, we pick up where we left off with more on the BMG. Wendy, in the last episode, we spoke about the relationship between business and enforcement with regards to the business members group. What would you say to businesses, obviously not those represented on the BMG, that see regulation as an obstacle to be got around and trading standards officers as, well, for want of a better word, spoil sports? Being a trading standards professional and and caring about compliance, I would see that as a very dangerous view. There may be less enforcement action um, at the moment, but more and more offences have become tied to turnover of the business. I mean, when I first started in trading standards, maximum fines for lots of offences were £1,000 or £5,000. Now it can be tied to the turnover of the business as saying more and more legislation in food labelling, in health and safety, um, age-restricted sales. B&M stores were fined, I think, last no, not last year before, fined £480,000 for the sale of a knife in a test purchase situation underage. As I say, that there are less enforcement um, challenges out there that the fines can be enormous, which isn't everything when it comes to talking to a business and persuading them, if, if that's the right word, to comply. Um, there's... As, as an advisor to business, you have to have different approaches with different businesses to convince them that they need to do, need to follow your advice. Some businesses, they are bothered about their competitors, not losing their competitive edge. They, in, ter- in terms of brand, in terms of reputation, some businesses are very consumer focused and want to be sure they're doing the right thing by their consumers all the time they're very they've got very loyal customers so they care about them other businesses might be concerned about their shareholders and and what they think and and the market so there's lots of effects around non-compliance that aren't just about being prosecuted And, and i'm lucky enough not to deal with hardly any businesses who take that sort of attitude obviously my enforcement colleagues aren't in that situation they've got to go into businesses that have a variety of different attitudes to it and and I'm sure they have their own set of ways of persuading businesses to comply that you know may or may be dissimilar to mine but but you know they will use various ways of doing it whether they give advice and then say I'll come back and check up on you and the, and the enforcement has become different it's not just about prosecution 
you see we see more and more regularly where businesses are asked to give undertakings asked to change what they do and if they don't change so they're given um a timeline or they agree a timeline to change they agree how the business is going to change and then if they breach that undertaking then that would be considered to be contempt of court and so that would go into court then and then the situation would be examined and if they were found to be in breach of an agreement they made in relation to a non-compliance then then again that would be an unlimited fine so I've not seen any of those go to court that that's the situation that particularly CMA have, have used over the years. So so I've not see, not aware of any of those going to court, but um, it's certainly a, a useful, it's a useful tool for enforcement colleagues because it's not as expensive and time consuming as going to court, but, um, and, and it can work with business to be persuasive to make them change. So, so I think that, that's, that's a useful tool for them. I'm Steve Abbott. I started in the world of trading standards on the day that VAT was introduced back in 1974. So as you can tell, I've been around a long time. I qualified in 1977. In those days, it was the old uh, weights and measures qualification and then followed that up with the DCA um, and a few other bits and bits and pieces. And Steve, your particular area of specialism is food law, isn't it? Yeah, I'm a Chartered Trading Standards Practitioner and I'm a self-employed food law consultant, amongst other things. I might do other jobs as well. I do some auditing for CTSI on ADR and the consumer codes and uh, I've got fingers and lots of lots of pies. But the main focus of what I do is I'm self-employed for my own one-man limited company and provide food labelling and food law advice. And I know you're a section representative for the CTSI business members group, which obviously we've been talking about with Wendy in the last episode. Could you tell us a bit about your involvement with the BMG? Well, I think we've got about 80 members now and a wide variety of different professions, but virtually every major retailer has a BMG member of some sort working for them. And we much very much benefit from the sort of networking that we've got. And certainly government departments are very keen to talk to us to try and get an industry view on new and proposed legislation and, and what's going on. I mean, one, one of my clients, I sit on the Provision Trade Federation Technical and Legislation Committee. So yesterday I was in London where we had representatives of DEFRA, FSA, Department of Health, I think Organic Standards, um, all talking about the changes that are likely to be faced by most of industry and most retailers with the uh, Brexit and uh, the bill that's going to go through. I represent one particular client, but uh, I'm sat next to another ex-TSO who's working for another an, another company. And often there's another EHO, an ex-colleague, and she sits there as, as well, So um, along with industry representatives. So we're all representing our particular areas. But, uh, you know, we've, we very much put a, a different slant on it to say, well, this is really what enforcement's likely to be. This is what's going to happen. This is the best way to, to, to comply. And we're just trying to achieve a degree of consistency, which is you know, sometimes not there. From your point of view, what kinds of thing are the businesses you work with concerned about when it comes to Brexit? Well, the, the whole thing, like, like all businesses, it's the uncertainty. And, of course, the civil servants from DEFRA and FSA are very guarded in what they can say and what they can't say. An industry, you know, they, someone at the meeting yesterday, they said, well, you know, on a particular date, will your labelling have to change? And that really doesn't represent the reality that most companies will only hold four to five months' worth of labelling stock uh, and people want to make the changes and, and be sure that the changes they make are going to be okay. 
Uh, and that's not necessarily the case at, at, at the moment. And they also want to know what the views of the enforcers are going to, going to be. Um, and I know that uh, I'm sure my ex-colleagues in the local authorities will keep their heads down while the dust settles on all this, but industry are, are quite fearful. For someone, if I've got the wrong health mark on my yoghurt, am I going to be hauled over the coals by a local authority who says you've got the wrong health mark on? I'm trying to use up six months' worth of currently compliant packaging but won't be compliant after the 1st of April next year. Now, one of the things I discussed with Wendy in the last episode was the challenge of keeping on top of regulation in the food industry. Is that something you recognise as a difficulty? The law exists, as, as, as it were, but there, you know, the, there's innovation going on all, all the time in, in, in the food industry. Um, I mean, current two areas that are exercising most people at the moment are the cannabis-based products, as to whether they're legal or whether they're not legal. Uh, and the other thing is plant-based foods where there's lots of debate about, you know, I know Piers Morgan's very excited about Greg's sausage roll. You can't call a sausage roll a sausage roll unless it's got meat in it, according to Mr Morgan. So there's, there's, quite, a lot of, uh, there's quite a lot of challenges around that area. And that's where, you know, in, you know the law doesn't keep pace with in, in innovation, in particular with meat products, where you've got a lot of reserved descriptions. In, and in theory, a burger has to meet a compositional standard for a, a burger made from meat uh, and the same thing for a sausage. But then a customer very, very easily understands what a vegetarian sausage roll is, although it might not be not might not be legal, and that really is, is the challenge for both industry um, and the enforcers to be pragmatic in their approach to it and achieve some degree of consistency. All, all the retailers, you know, one retailer comes up with a new a new idea, and all the other retailers are scurrying around very quickly to play catch up uh, and, and to advise someone to say, "Well, you can't do that. That's not legal." They uh, they will often say, "Well, everybody else is doing it. Why can't I do it?" And you can say, "Well." I'm giving you my opinion on what the law is and it's up to you. You know, you can take the commercial decision as to where you want to go with that. And presumably making sure that they're compliant with these things is one of the main priorities for businesses, particularly around food, which in terms of allergens, etc., can literally be a matter of life and death sometimes. Well, it can be. I mean, I've, I've you know, I worked for another company and I, I, prov- I provided a, a day's training on allergen management. Uh, and most of the work that we do in, in the business side would be on on, on defending clients on the due diligence systems if they get into trouble. But I recently helped uh, an ex-colleague of mine down in Wales on, a, on an allergen prosecution where it was clear that the company involved had very, very poor standards despite having lots of uh, accreditation. So I act as an expert witness for the prosecution on that uh, occasion, which is unusual for me. But again, I'm you know happy to help out colleagues and, and give opinions where I can. I've had a lot of experience in auditing food factories and quality management systems, and it's uh, that's an area where I can look at, see what's gone on and, and give an opinion as to whether it's satisfactory or not. Do you find that some businesses are more conscientious than others? Well, it, yeah, I mean, what's very frustrating is the you're trying to get, if you've got a client, um, I'm giving an example of a, a client who I, I've advised on his on his drink products. Um, he said, well, what about, again, put, pointed to a competitor who was clearly making claims that weren't allowed, making endorsements that weren't allowed. So I played the game properly and went through the home authority principle to the home authority. And they weren't interested in doing anything about it. They just kind of washed their hands. Oh, we're not bothered about that. And so the level playing field is very distorted. And then you know, I, ultimately I went to the advertising standards authorities who took up the cudgels. And it seems to me that the, the cut certainly in local authority means that food, particularly food enforcement, is quite low down the list of priorities, um, which means that the uh, that more uh, people are prepared to push the limits of, of the law are getting away with it and where you've got the playing field is distorted that uh, allows for all sorts of other people to come in and uh, make make problems 
I'm dealing with, with larger companies, but again, anybody can set up a business in their garage packing and selling food products. You've got the requirement to register with local authority, but unless somebody does that, they're going to stay below the radar unless they have a, have a problem. But, and if there's a problem, like undeclared allergens and somebody has an anaphylactic shock or, God forbid, dies from a, a product that's mislabeled, uh, it's only at that point that uh, the enforcement guys get, get get involved, which is far too late. So, and of course, the internet as well. So there's all sorts of internet sales going on. More and more foodstuffs are being sold on online. And I think that's a particular area of concern where it's the resources for local authorities are not there to adequately police that. Do you come across many situations where a retailer is acting in good faith, but they find that one of their suppliers may have provided them with a product that isn't up to standard without the retailer knowing about it? Well, the large companies, the retailers, they've all driven down into their supply chain much more than they've ever done before. And certainly the horse meat scandal was a, was a wake-up call for all of them. And so they've all now got um, developed huge resources to check the suppliers of suppliers and suppliers. So you've got, you know, one small spice manufacturer for, say, in the Far East, making a spice blend that's sold through a wholesaler, through another distributor, used by a manufacturer that ends up into a retail pack. But the traceability chains are there all the way through now. And it, it's, I think, be very rare to find a situation, certainly from the main brands or any of the major retailers, that they haven't got their supply chain absolutely bottomed out. At what point do you tend to become involved with the products themselves? Would that be during development, during manufacture, packaging, or at the retail stage? It, it varies tremendously. For one of my clients, I'm, I'm very much involved in innovation stage, uh, formulation, um, you know, draft labels, um, safety standards into the microbiological safety. And yet just this afternoon, probably one of the major major manufacturers and supplier of ingredients in the country, possibly around around the world. I'm there at the eleventh hour while they're waiting to press the button on their on their artwork, and I'm asked to look at that. Well, can we say that? Can we claim that that is a traditional product? Um, so I'm sometimes involved at the eleventh hour in, instead of being involved at an early stage. But that often happens. I mean, urgent is not a word that has any meaning in the food industry. Everything is urgent, um, and it's sometimes only at the eleventh hour they think, oh. Not sure about that. Perhaps we better get that checked before we go to print. So it, it does vary. Depends on who it is. I, I much prefer to work at a much earlier stage because you can highlight at an early stage where the problems are likely to be and the things that need to be considered before you end up with a legal label. And when it comes to labelling, is there anything in particular that you tend to look out for? There's lots of guidance. The Food Standards Agency are about to re- review their guide which I think goes back to 2008 I think it was on the use of terms like traditional fresh natural natural is a is a an expression that's much abused uh, at the moment it's got no legal definition and so you're looking at a code of practice which is quite old now uh, and so the FSA amongst all the other things they've got on their plate are trying to look at the review of that to perhaps come up with some more guidance I mean the guidance is not the law but it is treated as the law by a lot of enforcers uh, and that does create problems sometimes for industry when they're perhaps pushing it a little, a little bit further. So, you know, traditional, fresh, nat- natural, that kind of thing, pure, all those kind of descriptions that the marketeers love need to be um, dealt with in some sort of, you have to be careful about applying those descriptions to products that doesn't meet the code of practice uh, and potentially mis- mislead. Presumably when it comes to labelling enforcement, the ASA plays a big part. 
the ASA tend to be the place of last resort if you can't get things sorted. But I know now that the, a lot of local authorities are, are using the ASA rather than take action themselves. Um, and certainly if you want to get things changed, the ASA don't work terribly quickly. But again, they probably work more quickly than a local authority trying to bring a prosecution. Uh, and trying to bring a prosecution is no way to sort out labelling labeling issues. Um, the law has changed now in that uh, authorities can issue enforcement notices, um, and if, any, if a manufacturer or retailer wants to challenge that, then they go through, I think it's first-tier tribunal. To my knowledge, I don't think a first-tier tribunal has ever met yet. But that's a sort of a, a way of getting technical people involved in trying to sort out a technical issue because uh, you know, trying to take a food prosecution in front of three lay magistrates is no way really to sort out what are often very technical and complicated issues in terms of food labelling or composition. What's been your experience of budget cuts when it comes to food and enforcement? The problem, with, particularly with food standards, is that people don't see the difference between environmental health and, and trading standards. And where environmental health have the, uh, have the remit to make sure that food is safe, uh, the, the trading standards overlap is, tends to be with the labelling and, 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 and allergens. And you know, I think the public don't really understand, is it a TSO that deals with it, was it an EHO that deals with it? And if there's two people dealing with it, why are two people dealing with it and not one person dealing with it? So that kind of overlap is there. And certainly if you look at some of the reports on food standards inspections by local authorities, I think they're dropping year on year on year, particularly where local authorities are strapped for cash. It's something that uh, they think can go and, and, and uh, I suppose it's at the profession's own peril if they don't you know, take up the cudgel of still dealing with food standards. And what do you think the future holds for the relationship between businesses and enforcement, specifically in the area of, of food standards? The, the food standards Foundation are constantly debating about regulating our future, you know, how enforcement is going to work. And there, there was a concept of earned recognition that was being bandied about at some time as well. So if a company has been operating for many years, uh, they've got high standards, they've got various accreditations, they've never had a any serious dealings with environmental health or trading standards, then they've got their own recognition and they can be left left alone. So it all comes basically down to a kind of formalised risk assessment of are they a risky business? No, they're not. So, I mean, for instance, why would you want to be going, you know, sending EHOs and TSOs in five times a year to inspect Tesco's or Sainsbury's or any of the other major retailers who have their own teams of environmental health and trading standards officers maintaining the standards throughout the stores? In your experience, how do you think most businesses see regulation? I think most businesses like regulation. They like good regulation They like and they like consistent regulation. They like to be competing on an equal basis. What they don't like is where they see people paying fast and loose and aren't brought to book very, very quickly. And we lost, you know, lost count the number of times I've said to a client, well, you can't really say that because that's not true. And then they point to half a dozen other labels where other companies are, you know, playing fast and loose with the labelling law. You know, at the end of the day, they take, take a commercial decision, but I don't endorse that. I said, well, if you do that, you're going to be wrong as well, and you don't know that action's being taken at, at the moment. But where you've got that, the marketplace is distorted, it, it makes it very, very difficult for the guys that want to comply to do so if they see themselves at competitive disadvantage. And at the end of the day, food is very, very competitive. And do you think enforcement has enough teeth and are the sanctions available strong enough? I mean, the law as it stands is, is OK. I mean, the enforcement notice, if it's minor, if it's not a food safety is, is issue, then, you know, you, an enforcement notice to change your labels in due course. I mean, most companies will hold 
uh, quite a f- you know few months of stock because of the cost of, of producing. So you know it's going to take if you're any particular issue, it's going to probably take three to four months at least before labelling's changed to, to put a, a minor problem right. But it's only really the the serious instances of fraud or allergens where you know you you end up in front of the courts. But again. You know, a court process is terribly long. It takes an awful long time to get there. Uh, I think the case I dealt with, it was probably something like, I don't know, 16th months from the um, the original offence before it actually got got to court. So it's a, it's a very slow process in this in this country. I, you know, and that's the way these things are. You get lawyers and, and barristers involved. They all want to take their slice, and it's a, it's a slow process. How often do clients push back on the advice you give them? Well, the great difference from working with people that are self-employed is that we can risk assess. You know, if you wouldn't go and ask a policeman, is it all right if I can go speeding at 35 miles an hour down this road? Because the answer is going to be no. Uh, and with our clients, we, we sometimes will get a range of range of options. Um, is, is that is that okay? Is that or is that wrong? Or I mean, I, I, one of the clients, they sent me five different TV adverts that, that, that they'd made, uh, ranging from one I thought, well, oh, you can't say that, to one that was completely completely legal but they wanted to push it a little bit further so i was able to say well that's completely you can't go with that one that one's quite risky as well that's safe but that's probably okay um, and then they can run it through clearcast which is the people that sign off tv ads and, and get their final say on that but i think that one the one's going to go so the benefit really is we're all very pragmatic we've got a lot of experience in, in dealing with the law and interpret it in a, in a way that whilst it's compliant is also competitive in, in terms of having labels on products that you can sell. Well, Wendy, just to wrap things up, back to the business members group, what should trading standard professionals do if they want to get involved or join? The business members group uh, criteria are, as it sounds, that you either work for a business or advise business because that's what we focus on. And so that we feel that those members would get the most out of being a member. And if you want to to join get in touch with ctsi um, and they'll get a form they've got an application form that they can send out and that's it for another episode thanks to wendy potts and steve emmett for talking to us and thank you for listening we'll be back again soon with our first discussion of the unprecedented challenges to consumer protection posed by covid19 if you have any ideas or suggestions for the podcast or you just want to get in touch send us an email to made-to-measure at jtsmag.uk. Don't forget to like and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're listening to us. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.